You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafidi and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome to episode 68 of Here for the Truth. And I know I say this every week, but we truly have an incredible guest this week again. Irene Lyon is a nervous system expert, and we have an incredible conversation and will really bring you guys the, the true understanding of what the nervous system is and what actionable steps we can actually take to start dealing with the dysregulated nervous system. Just before we bring Irene on, rise above the herd. Our private group training program applications are now open again for the second run. We've had an ex- incredible experience, which is still ongoing with our first group. Um, so if you're looking to join, please head to riseaboveheherd.com.au. Wherever you're listening to this, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, whatever whatever your provider is, please like, subscribe, review, or, or, or leave a comment. That's one way to really help us get this information out there for sure. As always, all our episodes are available on hereforthetruth.com for you to check out. Um, anything to add to that, bro? No, that's it. All right, guys, enjoy this episode. All right, everybody. We have Irene Lyon with us today. She is a nervous system expert. She teaches people all around the world how to work with the nervous system to, tr- to transform trauma, heal body and mind, and live full creative lives. To date, her online programs have reached thousands of people in over 30 and over 90 countries. Irene has a master's degree in biomedical and health science and also has a knack for making complex info easy for all of us to understand and apply to our lives. She has extensively studied and practices the works of Dr. Moshe Feldenkrais. Did I pronounce that right? You sure did, yeah. Peter, Le- Peter Levine, the founder of Somatic Experiencing, and Kathy Kane, the founder of Somatic Practice. Irene spends her free time eating delicious food, hiking in the mountains, or walking along the Pacific Ocean in her hometown of Vancouver, British Columbia. Um, I love delicious food, and I love yeah. hiking in the mountains, and I'm near the Pacific Ocean, that's, so that's perfect. Totally. But Irene, thank you. Thanks for being here. Uh, thanks for being here for the truth. Yeah, thanks for having me on, both of you. Thank you so much. I don't know how you found me, but I'm here. Uh, JP, well, actually, we connected on Instagram. I mean, I follow you on Instagram because I'm a fan of the nervous system, and I think mm-hmm. we have a, a mutual friend. Pre- previous, um, a previous guest of ours, John Paul Rice. John Paul, yeah, yeah, yeah for sure. Cool. <laughs> awesome. So I guess I just want to start this off because I think, you know, a lot of people, you know, People are talking about trauma. They're talking about the body. They're talking about the nervous system more and more. Okay. I think it's coming into the kind of the, 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 the lingo these days. So can we just start off basically, like what is the nervous system? Yeah, well, there are more than one. So I'll start with that. Um, I'm just going to close a window here. There we go. Yeah, so there, you know, it, I can go as deep or as surface as you want, but I'll start with kind of the general just anatom- anatomical stuff. Mm-hmm. is that we've got kind of two main nervous systems. One is the central nervous system, which is the brain and the spinal cord. And then the peripheral nervous system, which is everything that comes out of the central. So out of the brain and out of the spinal cord. And the peripheral nervous system is a little more complex, not that it's better or you know more important, they're equally important, but it feeds you know our, our ability to move, digest food, talk, all the things that we need to do as humans, as mammals. Um, So the peripheral nervous system, that's when people say nervous system, 
typically that's what they're meaning, but they often don't know that's what they're meaning. So the peripheral nervous system contains or is the autonomic nervous system, which is the fight, flight, freeze mm -hmm. that most people know about now, which is cool. Not too long ago, people didn't know what that was. Um, and then there's also the sensory motor nervous systems or the motor sensory, um, which is what, you know, I have a hot cup of tea here. It allows me to feel the weight of it. It's hot, that kind of sensory motor perception and action. Um, and then to wrap those up a little bit more, the autonomic nervous system governs fight, flight, freeze, but it, which is our survival mechanisms, but it also governs all the things going on inside. So I, you know, if you, you were, I just saw you took a sip of something in your cup, that's going to go down to your stomach automatically, right? You'll digest it, suck out the, the liquid, get into your cells. If you don't need it, you'll pee it out. Immune system, hormone system, reproductive systems, um, shivering, sweating, all that stuff is also our autonomic nervous system, which is our peripheral. So that's a real basic overview of nervous system. Cool. Yeah. Awesome. So I guess it's just so fascinating to me. Yeah. Like a lot of people talk about like nervous system healing, yes. you know, like healing the nervous system. Yes. Now, is that the accurate way to say it? Or would you use different terminology um, for that? I'd love to hear you like your take on that. Yeah, it's a weird one. It's kind of like saying nutrition. Okay. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> and even I, I've been doing this work really since 2004, working at the mind body level and in, in working with humans since 1997. And so healing the nervous system can mean many things depending on the person and what's going on with their current physiology, what's going on with their current state of environment. Um, you know, are they in an acute trauma response? Are they living notably okay, but they're actually in a functional freeze, mm -hmm. which is kind of like, and I'm gonna be general, but like most of Western civilization, um, unless someone's really worked at these deeper nervous system. I like to also put in there somatic mm. levels. And so to say healing the nervous system is so broad because it depends on who we're talking about. Um, but most of the time it is healing dysregulation. And I think you guys know what that means, but for those that don't, that means healing a system that is basically living in survival stress, either high, 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 like hypervigilant, you know, uh, armored, everyone's out to get me, the world is a dangerous place, we're all going to die, that kind of scenario, even though they might not think that, their actions and their way of living their life is that hypervigilant armoring, mm -hmm. or more of a collapse, shutdown, uh, we could use the terms depression, shame, uh, no interest in connection, um, introversion that's you know that's where the whole introversion thing has i think popped is there's actually just so many people that don't know how to express and connect because their system is dysregulated yeah. at that nervous system level so you know it gets oversimplified in the memes of the day on instagram where um you just see a lot of points but until you go deeper into those points it's kind of hard to actually understand what healing 
is at that nervous system level and what I'm, I'm starting to use the term more nervous system health. Mm. Cause not everyone thinks that they've had a trauma happen to them. And that's another discussion. I mean, we can dive into that too. Yeah. So, I, I, uh, I want to get, <laughs> get into trauma, but yeah, before yeah. we get there, what are, what are the general factors in today's culture that would lead to people, to the majority of people, as you say, to have dysregulated nervous systems? Being born. Yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a joke, but not, you know. Um, it's pretty traumatic being born. <laughs> yeah, was that not funny? <laughs> I actually I actually missed it to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, being born. Oh being born. Oh yes. Oh wait, of course, right? Yeah. I mean, we can start as far back as far back goes to ten thousand years ago when we domesticated plants and animal animals, but maybe we won't go there. But as soon as a little one or a fetus or cells or however you want to call it is conceived, yeah. if mama is living in a state of dysregulation and not just because she's in a war-torn country or you know in an abusive relationship, but because she's working 40 hours a week and she's cleaning the house and she's doing all the things, that is stressful. And she's yeah. doing it typically, I'm generalizing here too, yeah. out of functional freeze. Like she doesn't know that she has got cortisol spiking, that her sleep at night isn't actually deep rest digest. And then we have little one inside developing and getting hit with all of these stress chemicals, of course, the food, the toxins. I mean, this is part of my story as I was exposed to a lot of chemicals mm -hmm. in utero and also transgeneration, transgenerationally through my mom. Um, but if we think about even just that one snapshot, yeah, that is the beginning of our, and I don't like to call it trauma because it's not like the mother is trying to harm yeah. the little one. It's just circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so if we look at that, little ones inside developing, what are they connected to? The umbilical cord. So anything that she consumes, any emotion she feels or holds in, Little one is like trying to get away, literally, but they can't. And this is, um, I know one of you studied SE, so it's this idea of inescapable attack. Yep. And I think that's one reason why a lot of um, children, a lot of infants, fetuses, however you want to call it, they're not, um, they don't go full term. They're either born preemie or they, a, a person will miscarry because it's just not viable to be hitting that system with so much stress chemical and so much toxicity. Um, so, I mean, that's one starting point. And then little one comes out. And if, again, I talk from a more Western point of view, little one's being born in a hospital, bright lights, big city, yeah. you know, all the electricity, uh, medical instruments, maybe taking them out because they're stuck because mother is so stressed and tight. She doesn't know how to relax, doesn't know how to be in her body, um, all the things. Um, and then the moment they're taken out, if they're not connected, you know, what we know now is, I mean, we should know this because mammals in the wild, skin to skin, as soon as that little one comes out, they're on mama, right? Suckling, nuzzling, they're not taking those little bear cubs away and putting them in another room. If I use an example to the wild. Yeah. So the moment that that little human comes out, a lot happens that disallows their 
entry into the world to be, dare we say, peaceful and mm -hmm. in connection and nurtured and you're cared for, um, there's often just so much stress going on in those delivery rooms. Um, and so that's, you know, another level of where we get a little messed up in our entry point into breathing oxygen. And then from there, you guys, I mean, we could go down medical trauma, shock traumas, developmental traumas, attachment troubles, um, uh, being a good kid, having to get the good grades, mm -hmm. not expressing ourselves. Um, I mean, it's just, there's so many ways in which we're exposed to things that aren't necessarily considered a threat or bad, but actually put that little one into survival stress. Yeah. And then depending on the environment, if that threat, that harm continues, little one grows into a world where they're actually never ever, they've never known what it's like to be regulated they're brought into dysregulation. And I mean, again, I generalize, that's the bulk of us. Yeah. Even yeah. those of us that have had roofs of our, over our head, food on the table, we went to soccer practice, we did all the things, um, but there's just this little bit of a din, if you will, of this stress. Um, and then of course, that person grows up to be our age, you know, I'm 46, yeah. and they realize, as they start to learn, holy cow, I never was allowed to cry. Mm. I was sent to my room or I was never allowed to paint a funny drawing. It always had to be perfect. Or every time dad come home, I had to stop talking because if I didn't, he'd hit me or whatever. So that's not my story. It's my husband's story. But you know, there's all these ways that we prefer in the somatic world to call it the way dysregulation sits in the nervous system because two people might have the exact same incident occur, say a car accident, and one person walks away just fine and is really okay, and another person walks away and they're a wreck with PTSD. And if we trace that back, a lot of the trouble started when they were young and their system just didn't have the reg regulation to deal with that stressful event like a car accident. Hope yeah. I'm making sense. No, totally. Absolute sense. Yeah. Got your is that where, you know, the concept of resilience comes in as well? Because you're saying there's two people that are experiencing the similar event and yet one experiences it one way and the other mm -hmm. one uh, is impacted more severely. So I don't know if you want to talk about like resilience or window of tolerance or those kinds of uh, right. subjects. Well, if we think of that example I just gave of, you know, it's, it seems so morbid, but, you know, little one that's born into toxic stress, not necessarily neglect or abuse, but just we would call it misattunement, which is, you know, when a baby comes out, they need to be attuned to by their primary caregiver. It doesn't have to be the mother. It could be a nanny, a, an older sibling, something like someone that is looking after them. And that attunement teaches the little human what we would call self-regulation through that co-regulation. When I'm hungry, I'm fed. When I'm hot, someone helps me, you know, take my clothes off. When I'm cold, I'm bundled up. When I have gas in my stomach, I'm soothed and, and I'm connected to so that my autonomic nervous system can digest food properly. 
all of that is in service of creating what we would call regulation. And as you mentioned, Erasmus, that window of tolerance. I'm feeling something not good in my system. It's not good. It's not good. Okay, here's nanny coming and she's going to pick me up. And of course, this baby isn't thinking this, right? Because they're not able to talk yet, but they're feeling yeah. all of it. And okay, she can see that I'm in distress. She picks me up. She reads my cues. Oh, I'm hungry. Gives me food. That stress then comes down. And that's how we build resiliency, to use that word. I, I prefer res regulation because someone can be really resilient, but actually very shut down. Gotcha. Right? And so that window of tolerance, it, let's just say that's a situation. It's a good situation. It's secure. It's healthy. It's attuned. Um, you know, even changing diapers, for example, isn't done with this, this stinks, this is gross. It's just, we're just changing your diaper, right? And that's, that, that those messages come so young. And so we build our self-regulation in that primary dance with this caregiver. So if you imagine a human that's brought up that way, you know, you still have to have chores and boundaries, and maybe we don't want to clean our room when we're seven, but and you, we're like, I don't want to. And mom is like, well, you've got to let me help you as opposed to um, you little piece of whatever, like figure it out. I'm going to leave you here until you figure it out, which is a very common way that kids are talked to. But if there's that connection of I'm going to help you figure out how to clean your room, let's do it together. Those sorts of things. That's building that window of tolerance. So fast forward 10 years, that kid that was brought up well, attuned, secure, they get into that car accident, to go back to that example. And it's not huge, but it's enough to be a bit of a shake. Because they've built that regulation and that window of tolerance, they can feel the intensity of maybe the pain, because maybe they got a whiplash, or the stress of I'm on the highway and there's cars going by, but I'm okay. And I'm gonna, I know how to get the insurance. I'm gonna call 911, blah, blah, blah. They can handle it and stay contained in their window of tolerance. But if you then examine a person who didn't get that secure attachment, who was never attuned to, who was left to cry themselves to sleep, which is a big, big no-no, for all mammals, not just humans. I mean, think about it. You would never see a mother bear leave her cubs wailing and crying alone mm -hmm. in a den. Like it just would, unless she was killed or something, that would never happen. And so if we think of the baby that's left to cry themselves to sleep in a dark room, their nervous system physiology never learns self-regulation. It learns shutdown that freeze, mm -hmm. shut down, collapse, yeah. or it stays stuck in a hypervigilant state with a lot of um, tension and armoring. And so then that baby maybe isn't listened to, then it becomes a little toddler. It's not allowed to learn how to crawl because high achiever mom and dad wants them to walk right away and get them onto their feet before they're too ready. Um, and they never learn how to even be with their bodies, how to land and feel a little oops or a little bump, cry and have the tears be felt. They're told immediately, stop crying. Don't yep. feel that. And so all, you see where I'm going here? All that stuff gets stored. And then fast forward into that 10 years, that same person 
or that person gets into the same kind of car accident, everything falls apart. Because maybe that's the first real big event that is so shocking. And I've seen this when I was in private practice, someone would come in the tiniest car accident, you guys, and you're, and the, the insurance people don't know what to do with them because they're like, the car wasn't totaled. Why are they in so much pain? Mm-hmm. Why is their gut? Why do they now have an autoimmune illness? Why are they afraid to leave their house? Why can't they work? You know, they were fine before, but then when you go back and you hear their history, you go, I'm thinking about it, someone I worked with, they're like, well, yeah, I was like in charge of paying bills in my house. I'm like, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, my, my parents were alcoholics, so I was paying the bills by the time I was 10. Like, oh, okay. And then you start to see the story unravel that they were never taught any window of tolerance. They had what um, Kathy King, one of my mentors, would call a, a false or a faux window of tolerance, where they've managed their lives so exquisitely but in a very superficial way, not with that resiliency or regulation, kind of like white knuckling life in a sense, just getting through, getting through. And often these folks have very strong routines. They can't have anything go wrong. Everything has to be very controlled, dare I say, even OCD. Um, And if anything just slightly goes off, it's like everything's over. So, I can't remember what the question was, but if we think of these two scenarios of person A having good regulation, good, good nurture, like the, the cub would from a bear, but human, you know, which is a lot more complex versus the human that doesn't, that shows you how someone later in life just has a life that just kind of never really gets good. Like, and you see this, you'll see this in folks who something bad is always happening to them. They're always getting something, it's like bad luck. And really, if you go back, their nervous system has screwed up, screwed up what we would call a neuroception. Their perception of safety is completely off. And they literally walk down the wrong alley, you know, metaphorically or literally. So that's kind of a, a foundational way of saying, we're all very different. And then there's these common themes that you see in Western civilization of either a bit more resilient and there was a bit of a robust start versus not. You're, 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 you're speaking to something so profound and something that I've been contemplating myself. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I've, I've, I've got two daughters of my own, um, two, two attempted home births. The first one, not so successful. We had to transfer yeah. to hospitals, a bit more chaotic. Right. The second one, beautiful, peaceful at home. And just in everything you're speaking to, I really want to just in, in this moment, one of my wife who's done a mammoth and monumental task of, of developing such healthy attachment um, with those girls and, and nurturing them. And it's really incredible. But one thing you said um, is that something that I've been thinking about, is it possible that this whole idea of the nervous system or karma even is really just our genetic nervous system or our generational nervous system that that imprint what we call karma this idea of karma because as you mentioned these people they reach they meet bad luck after bad luck you know what I'm, you know what I'm saying mm-hmm. hmm. well I yeah I mean I am a big believer in free will which yeah. I know is up for debate in some biological 
avenues, like Robert Sapolsky, who's a pretty well-known biologist, he doesn't believe that free will exists. And that's fine. That's his you know, viewpoint of biology. But when you understand the depths, as you were saying, Joel, of this nurturing, this attachment, when you have a system that has pretty good regulation and you're not living with the lens of everything is out to get me or I'm shut down, when you're actually living with health within the nervous system, your will to choose is actually quite strong and high. But if you think about that little kid or that infant who when they were hungry were always denied food or when they needed a comforting human were shut in the dark, that's not a good situation for raising a human to see the world as a nice, friendly place that is going to offer them goodness. And so this even falls into the whole line of victim identification. And of course, there are some folks who were deeply, deeply abused and neglected. And yes, bad, awful things happened. And are you still living in that loop? But to get out of it can be very, very, very hard when there isn't the right um, lens and understanding of what's going on in that person's physiology. And then that's where, you know, the methodologies that we've been, you know, desperately trying to use to help ourselves have often failed. Um, You know, we're in 2022, the whole self-help movement really started, you know, in the 60s and just continued with, you know, first it was peace, love and and LSD, and then it was the aerobics, and then it was uh, working with nutrition and fitness, and then it was core strength, and then it was the mind-body world, and then it was meditation, and then it was breath work. And then it was cold plunges. And now finally people are like, holy shit, there's this thing called a nervous system. We should probably look at it. Like, yeah, that's what my mentors have been saying since the sixties. Thank you for finally picking on, you know, getting on the train. But then we have to look and say, well, are all these other things bad? It's like, no, they're not bad. It's, but they should come after the regulation Mm -hmm. happens. Um, so yeah, it's kind of an interesting, we're in a really interesting time yeah. in humanity right now for this stuff. Yeah. yeah. And, sorry. You go, you go I was going to say, it would be really difficult for most people to identify that they have a dysregulated nervous system as well, because if the individual yeah. is dysregulated and the society is dysregulated, for the most part, there's there's no perspective available to them. You betcha. Mm. Everything is normal. This yeah. is normal. The fact that I need this to go to sleep at night and this to wake me up in the morning and that I take these medications and that I need all these things in perfect order to function in my day. That's just being alive for many of us. Yeah. You know, I often, I've said to some people in past shows, like it's not even a consideration that one could die of just old age. Like, oh, how did, how, you know, when you hear a family member pass or how, oh, how did they die? It's just assuming there's, they died of an illness, an accident, a disease. But how many people do we know? I certainly don't know anyone who died at like 105 and the day before they were walking, cooking, reading, Mm. doing their thing. Like the decline is really interesting. Um, so we have an assumption that, 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 yeah, dysregulation is actually normal, 
Because the other thing we could get into is the research that's really showed when there is dysregulation and early adversity, it is a very strong connection correlation with adult illness, cancers, chronic illness, all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So cool. I mean, we can get into that, but you, you touched on a couple of things that I really want to yeah. uh, chat about because especially in the health world, um, they've gotten even more popular. And then the languaging people use around it, like with breath work and cold plunging, it's like, heal your trauma, release your trauma. And so I'd love to just hear your take and all that. Sure. Cause we have these buzzwords and these phrases sure. that people just throw, throw out there and, um, please, uh, enlighten us. So for the record, I have a cold plunge in my, I don't have a backyard. I have like a deck in the city, you know, full of cold water. I've got a sauna, do all oh. that stuff. Right. Same here. Yeah. And if I think about some of my students, clients, I call them students, whom are living with a chronic illness, an autoimmune illness, their capacity is like so small. I will, I will never ask them to get into a bucket of cold water because their system is fragile and can't take that intensity of the shift in the autonomic nervous system. Now, hydrotherapy is beautiful when we have the capacity to feel a spike, say, in our heart rate and a drop, which is what happens when you go into a very cold body of water. We go into a, um, a dive reflex, essentially, which is what other mammals have when they're in cold water to keep them under and they stay alive. And so it's a great tool for working with the that peripheral nervous system I was mentioning, but it's to me, it's a tool, it's an adjunct. What we have to think about when we are looking at um, healing trauma is again, I got to come back to those two people. Like if the person uh, B who didn't have the good upbringing is wanting to heal, we actually have to bring them back to what they never got. So I'll give you this example. So let's just say Irene comes in and I'm really dysregulated and I'm, I have an autoimmune problem. I have attachment issues. I don't want to go outside of the house. And we know, okay, Irene didn't have that good connection, that secure attachment, all the things we want to, and this is how I see it with my work, reverse engineer. So what didn't happen? And if you think about the secure kiddo, uh, like Joel, your your girls, for example, your wife, when she was um, trying to soothe one of your daughters, she isn't going to put her or her into a nice bath to calm her down. You wouldn't you you wouldn't do that. No. You also wouldn't ask the baby to take a deep breath because they wouldn't understand it. But you can hold them and soothe them, maybe a little rock, maybe they're hungry, maybe connecting, whatever it might be. And in that connection, in them feeling their bodies, they then take a natural spontaneous breath. And so that's kind of, um, it's a very small difference, Mm -hmm. but it's like, we wanna teach the human how to be back in their physiology. And then we have to understand everyone's physiology is so different as humans because we were all treated super differently. And that's where um, I 
again, I, I know there's a time and a place for monitoring your breath, maybe feeling it. I'll get into my cold plunge and I'll, I'll use it more as a, as a, a therapeutic for just being a little more in that hydrotherapy bubble and circulation benefits. But if we think of dysregulated nervous system, person that didn't get good attachment, good connection, we need to teach that person how to come back into their body in very small titrated doses. Now, one thing I would say, if we use the breathwork cold thing, I have said to some of my students who have more dysregulation, more chronic illness, uh, get a bucket of or a soup pot of warm water and cool water and put your feet in that. So it's not a shock, but it's just a slight temperature change. So you feel the sensory difference, right? Even a hot water bottle or a cold pack just to feel that. Cause sometimes a part, you ask someone, what do you notice in your body? And they go, what do you mean? Mm. If someone can't give you a play by play of what's called their interoception, in my opinion, they shouldn't be doing breath work or cold plunging because you can put the system into a deeper state of override shock or shutdown, but they might not know it because they're so disconnected from their sensory awareness. So it's all about this word that Peter Levine kind of popularized titration, which is little tiny drops at a time, building up a person's somatic capacity, but also their capacity to be in the environment, to orient to what's around them, so that eventually they can do these practices, um, you know, exercise. A lot of my students can't exercise. And it's not because they don't want to, it's just their physiological capacity is so low that anytime their heart rate goes up, they think that they're in a threat response. And then they pop into a fear-based response. And we don't want that either. So I don't know, does that answer your question? Yeah, it definitely that? does. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess I want to segue because again, even with breath work, there's a lot of times the focus on like releasing emotions, get the right. get the emotions out and and you've healed trauma. And and I, I definitely understand the value of 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 sure. that. And I think it could be very powerful. I'll speak from personal experience. Um, a trained body worker. I've had mm -hmm. experiences where uh, I've had emotions that have been released where there's no story attached to it, and yeah. I feel like I've been reborn. Totally. Now, I also feel like I've had the the capacity to hold space for that and and have an awareness of what's happening and be yeah. with it and not just check out. And so I think that kind of goes hand in hand with, with how that can be beneficial. What you just said there is really important, not check out. And I, I think what occurs in a lot of these, um, and it's not just breath work, for example, like this happens in yoga, mm -hmm. this happens in retreat centers where people are doing, I mean, I've seen this in business retreats, you know, where no one's there to heal anything, but they're asked to like do something body-based in a room full of strangers. And the instructor isn't trained to know how to guide that. And I all of a sudden feel the energy of the group just drop because everyone goes into protection mode because they don't want to close their eyes and imagine something because half of the room probably doesn't even know how to do that, right? So when you have the capacity and you know how to keep yourself in check or be like, oh, wow, I'm starting to feel myself numb out. I think I better stand up and like open my eyes. This isn't good. Um, you know, that's, that's an important thing. I mean, 
have you heard of Spirit Rock? It's a meditation center. I'm pretty sure it's, right? So this is like, this is more urban legend, but I'm pretty sure it's accurate. Back in the day, they used to have an ambulance waiting on site when people did their 10-day Vipassana meditation retreats because people would have what we would consider like massive heart problems, cardiac arrest, like because they're being asked to dive so deep into their bodies so quickly without knowing what they might find. Um, and I heard that since these things started happening, I think they made it such that their staff had to at least have like the beginning of SE mm-hmm. understanding so that they understood titration. And, and if someone needs to stand up, please let them stand up, let them take a break. You don't have to force someone to sit there um, in agony for, for 10 days or whatever it might be. I mean, obviously people sleep and eat, but um, I think there's just, there is more awareness around that. And it really comes back to the person, I think, learning about this so that they can go to these things to benefit from that group connection and that teaching. But then there's also um, an ethical understanding that if I don't want to do this, I'm not going to do it. But then that's where the peer pressure comes in because we've been taught, I mean, I went to public school you know, if you don't do what everyone else is doing, you're going to be laughed at and pointing at and, well, why can't they do that? And so people, I've seen people override their physiology to stay part of the group. And that's the other thing. That's like where being trauma-informed at that level is super important in these sort of retreat settings, for example. Do you think people are overusing that term, even though they're not really trauma-informed? Like I've, I'm seeing that everywhere. I'm seeing that on everyone's website now, Instagram. And I'm just curious, like, it's just the new buzzword. Like I'm trauma informed. I'm like, would you read a book? Did you take like a, a, a single day workshop? It's totally being, it's being abused, the term. Because I've, I've, I have heard stories, lots of them, and been in situations where someone is saying that they're trauma informed, but really they just know of the polyvagal theory, they know of the, the fact that there's this thing called the nervous system, but they don't actually know what that might look like in a group setting. Um, and that's where it's just, it's do, it's doing such disservice. And, I, and I'm seeing it a lot now. People will have online courses where they name drop, you know, Porges, Bessel van der Kolk, Porges, Levine, mm-hmm. just quoting them but they're not quoting them because they've learned with them. They're just quoting them because they are the leaders. And by quoting them, it makes it look as though that person, and maybe they do, but you know, I don't have that stuff on my site because I'm my own practitioner. I'll say my credentials, but I don't have to quote, you know, Levine or Vanderkal on my front page to sell something. It's like, so no, there's a lot of, um, shenanigans going on with that sort of stuff yeah yeah what can you give a big the sorry you go i was gonna ask about polyvagal if you were gonna ask about it there you go what is the polyvagal what is polyvagal so polyvagal um i mean the actual word just means many vagus and the vagus nerve is a cranial nerve that comes out of the the brain Mm -hmm. and it comes out of two different portions, the front and the back of the brainstem. 
and then it travels everywhere. Face, larynx, pharynx, heart, lungs, and then all the organs, um, inner ear. And it essentially is a big portion of our parasympathetic nervous system. That's the vagus nerve. But polyvagal theory, if we look at that, that term was coined by Stephen Porges, who is a researcher. He's not a clinician. He's an academic researcher. And he discovered that our nervous system has, um, and this is a fancy word that he uses, but I'll use it, a phylogenetic mm. way of working. And that if we are under threat, if a big bear comes towards me, I might try to like calm it down, social engagement, like, but that might not work with the bear. So I'm going to go into sympathetic, fight, flight, run, flee, get the heck out of here, run away from the bear. And let's say if it's a grizzly bear and it keeps chasing me, which it might do, I will then phylogenetically go to the next stage, which is to shut down and freeze and numb myself out. So I don't feel it, you know, mauling me kind of thing. It's a very extreme way of showing like that cascade of nervous system response to a threat, stressful threat situation. Um, so really it, it's, it's nothing more than the way in which our system, our physiology acts, reacts to a situation that's a threat and then the cascade of response that we might go through. And again, that's one way to test someone if they actually understand is if they feel that the polyvagal theory is just about the vagus nerve, that's not true. It's actually about the entire cascade of nervous system response to a situation. It could even be um, a friendly situation. So I'm talking to you lovely guys and you know we're smiling and you just smile a little bit and I saw that and I could do funny faces and I might, and their Joel style finally, you know, <laughs> yeah, see like that's, there's a, there, it took a second but you guys have the ability to see that and react. And if all of a sudden a big bang happened outside my door, you might hear it and wonder if it's you that's hearing it in your, and then you'd be like, oh my God, Irene, are you okay? And I'd be like, I might go check. Like that is the response to the environment. And so polyvagal is a very simple way of just saying how we react to things, whether good or bad. And I dropped the term neuroception a few minutes ago. That term was also coined by Stephen Porges, which basically means perception of safety or perception of danger. So if I take this example a little further, if I hear that big bang outside, if I was that kid that was, that was not treated well, and had really poor window of tolerance and lived in survival stress, I would hear that. And for the rest of our talk, I'd be like, not able to focus, right? Mm -hmm. My nervous system physiology is hijacked by that thing out there. But if I have that good, healthy, secure, I might be like, oh, that was, that's a healthy nervous system response to startle to something big. And I'm like, no, it's just, that was just, um, you know, the UPS driver dropped something, not a big deal. Let's keep talking. Right. And so when we really talk So would you about, say that like yeah. um, a dysregulated nervous system can hijack rationality or hijack uh, reason? Okay. Oh yeah. It will, it will leave a person with 
a false sense of reality can, it can, yeah. it will leave a person with a false sense of safety. And this is what we see when someone was raised in a situation where there wasn't security, there wasn't good yummy attachment, there was threat around them all the time. That person will actually think that normality is being in constant threat mm. or being in constant shutdown. And so we have a problem there when a lot of humans have been raised in subtle ways of dysregulation, not big, big, bad stuff, but just slight tweaks where it's just a little not quite right. Um, it will be very hard for that individual to tune into the truth, mm -hmm. right? Knowing real right from wrong, um, sensing themselves appropriately, uh, sniffing out the bad apples, so to speak. Yeah. That makes sense? Yeah, yes. with the discernment as well, you know? Yes, that's the yeah. that's a good word. So that's, I mean, polyvagal, that's kind of it. It's it's uh, not, a, it's impressive, but it's not, you know, it's one piece of a very big part. Yeah. Um, and so it's, the information is really more understanding contextually all the different ways that a human might react or not react based on their history, based on their wiring and based on the current moment. So how does someone's journey yeah. begin to developing a healthier nervous system once they recognize that they're in dysregulation? The first thing from seeing all the students I've been with, they have to want it. Yeah. Like, they have to really want it and they have to be willing to, I don't, and I use this word not in the way that we might think, but to push, to persevere, even when stuff might not make any sense. Because part of a lot of people's um, rewiring, and re I really prefer the term relearning, um, and for some learning for the first time is things are going to seem like to like totally in the upside down, right? Like this doesn't make any sense. Um, I've been told all my life that this is how I should act in a situation. And now I'm realizing that actually I need to do this. This is, this is disjointed. And so I think um, in addition to wanting and believing, um, there's also this need to feel that you deserve it. Mm -hmm. which can be a big hurdle for folks to get through when they've been brought up with a lot of toxic shame, uh, which is a type of shame that is just insidiously um, embedded in a person's cells where they believe that nothing ever good will happen um, and that they don't deserve the goodness. And so, you know, if I use my hands to kind of describe like three or four or five tracks when someone starts this work, um, again, I'm really not into the quick fixes because we have to kind of take care of different things at different times. But sometimes there might be continual tracks of learning a little bit of education and then maybe learning a little bit of embodiment, but then also learning how to be in your environment with your the current people in your life. Um, there's many, many factors there. So I can go deeper into that, but let me know 
how deep you want me to go. <laughs> yeah, please go. Uh, please continue to elaborate on that. We're here for the truth. Sure. Well, there's a there's a concept that um, another author, uh, he is a physician and a researcher from Canada, coined. His name is. Um, have you come across Norman Doidge's work at all? The the brain uh, way of healing and the. Brain I I think I have a well. book of his. My my wife I think has a book as well. Yeah, they're I, thick I books. The <laughs> um, in his second book. Um, the brain's way of healing, he outlines, he calls it neuroplastic healing, which basically means we have to um, heal in a way that has a certain sequence. And so when I teach my students, I call it neuroplastic healing sequencing. And the simplest example would be, um, I would never ask someone who can't even feel their body or even sense their digestion to say, begin meditating or it's like real simple. Mm. I also wouldn't put them in a cold bath or ask them to do breath work, but I might ask them to sense what is it like to feel air just come in and go out without changing anything. Um, and so we need to start with what we would call, um, and I'll use the fancy term, but neuromodulation. And neuromodulation basically means gaining a bit more regulation a bit more understanding of the physiology, not being so tight or not being so collapsed. Now, this is where it gets tricky. If someone has more early pre-verbal developmental trauma, that might not work. And so this is where the work that I've done um, by Kathy Kane, who is also a, a somatic experiencing colleague of mine and Peter's, um, she really kind of landed on why a lot of people don't succeed doing somatic experiencing. And it's because their trauma is much earlier and much more pre-verbal and cellular and somatic. And so for some people, um, I'm jumping a little bit here, but they might need to work with what we, what I call the stress organs. So the kidneys, the adrenals, like where that adrenaline and cortisol gets pumped out, we might have to work with the gut and not like massage the gut, but through intention of giving it the cue, you're safe, you're okay. Because our gut is our first brain when we're, when we're born. Has, I mean, that's where the vagus nerve really shines is that gut connection. Um, we might work with um, the brain stem that area that, that tightens kind of like when a turtle pulls its head into its shell when it senses something isn't right. Um, we might work with, um, again, it's an osteopathic term, but the diaphragms of the body, not just the true diaphragm that, that allows our lungs to move, but the different levels of diaphragms um, at the crown, throat, shoulders, belly, solar plexus that we kind of line up with the chakras. And the reason why we might work with someone first off with these stress organs and these sort of layers of the body is again, if you think about, go back to that first example of the, the human developing in mom, all of the somatic qualities of sensations and fear and threat coming through the chemical aspect are, are imprinted within that person's system cellularly there is literally that sense of, I am not safe and everything is trying to get me. And so in that case, we have to work with these very subtle 
intentional, I don't like to use the word calming, but that's the best word to use. Like just this calming, this um, they're there, you're okay. Yes, it was scary. And you're and like, you might do this kind of work with someone for like two years to help them actually build up the tolerance to even feel their body at that level. And to realize that the world actually isn't at me all the time, but that's the story. That's the imprint from so long ago. And so part of this work, again, it might be learning to teach someone to feel their stress physiology. Like, oh, I just got stressed when that big loud bang came outside and now I'm going to monitor it and feel how it comes down and notice that. But then for other people, it might be this more refined stress organ stuff. Um, and, you know, from there, it really is about building what I call this capacity in the physiology to be with everything happening inside, in addition to how a person senses that in relationship with the environment. Um, you know, when I teach my students, we're literally spending 12 weeks going through all these different levels, different layers, um, treating each person similarly, but in it, we also say, you've got to go at your own pace, kind of choose your own adventure. Um, but the layers are all very much the same. It's about building capacity. And then what happens, interestingly enough, is when a person builds capacity to sense, to feel, and their, their regulation grows, that's when the emotions, as you were mentioning, Erasmus, like when you felt that emotion come out that had no texture, no context, um, they might sense a shaking response or they might have just tears falling out of their eyes for no reason, or they might have shifts in temperature, or they might all of a sudden um, crave different foods, right? All sorts of, or their sleep might shift. And it's not because we're asking them, let's find all your traumas. We're actually just helping them do what they should have had done when they were really, really little but from an adult point of view. I hope that makes sense. It's a bit cryptic, but. It makes perfect sense. Oh, good. <laughs> Can someone be, be um, overly nurtured or overly protected or felt to be overly safe? And can that be problematic? Sure. Okay. Want some examples? Yeah, yeah please. please. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I'll just use, an, I'll just use the, 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 the kid example, right? Um, so one of my classic examples is little Susie or Johnny is riding their bike. They're five years old, learning how to ride their bike for the first time. I mean, I grew up in a time where there were no such thing as training wheels. So, you know, you're just trying and they fall, you know, and they fall and they scrape their knee and there's blood and it hurts and they're crying. In that moment, there's a choice point with the parent or whoever, what do you do with that? Now, of course, if they fall onto a road and there's traffic, then of course you're gonna to wanna to scoop them up and get them off. But let's just say you're somewhere safe, there's no traffic. At that moment, if you do too much, it would be to scoop them up quickly and be like frantic, like you're okay, you're okay, you're okay. And often that's because the parent is freaking out more than the kid. It's like this worry and we can trace that back to their own stuff. Um, a situation like that, I'll give you the example of what we want to do would be to sit there, let them cry, let them know that we're there, but not meddle 
with their physiological response. You know, let the snot and the tears and the wailing ah, and all that stuff. And then when they come down out of that activation, a child will inevitably look for you and reach, right? And so you want to wait for that reaching and then that's when you scoop them up. So that's one example, Joel, where too much could occur too soon. Um, and that might look like a good thing. Oh, well, you're protecting them, you're nurturing them. It's like, no, let them have their response. Let them feel it. Let them feel it in connection with you. Don't just walk away, right? That's the other thing. And be there um, connected. The other example I'm going to use is, um, this is kind of my husband's upbringing. We had very different upbringings, um, but he was put through like strict, strict protocols with his dad, like just physical abuse, emotional abuse, toxic shame, everything had to be perfect. So much so that when he had his child, not through me, but through another lady, he was terrified to do anything that resembled teaching him things like cleaning up your room or learning how to put the dishes away or learning how to do what we would call chores in our day and age. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. there's been, I've seen not just in my husband, but in a lot of other folk kind of of our generation, like mid forties, where we had that militant upbringing, there's this swing the other way mm -hmm. where we don't want to put our kid into any sense of uncomfortable anything um, because a we had too much of that and b for us to do that is deadly and I'll you know I'll never forget my husband when we had his kiddo with us like it was it was painful for my man my husband to ask his son to take the garbage out like he went through a physiological reaction like feeling like he was harming his kid. He was being a terror and it was completely off. Like it wasn't accurate. But I think what a lot of people might do, Joel, to go back to your question, is they're not even aware of this internal physiology. And so they just do everything. They do everything for the kid. They do everything to the point where um, little one ends up becoming a big one and they have no, they just don't know how to take care of anything. And I think we're seeing sadly a lot of that. Then they have a right physiological now. response to being asked to take the garbage out. Yeah. yeah. And, and I think this can lead <laughs> something that uh, Joel and I talk a lot about, um, is self-esteem, low self-esteem, yeah. which is the inability to, to even cope with the basic challenges of life because everything's been done for them. Done for them. And, you know, I don't know where it came from because I, I, was, I was probably taught to do too much too young <laughs> um, and that I was raised by um, two parents that were, you know, from farm life where when, you're, when you grow up on a farm, you know, you're doing everything by the age of four to help, um, but it was in a different setting. But, you know, just to give an example, like the moment a child can walk and like hold a cup it's not even about teaching. It's about including them into the act of cleaning up after dinner. Mm. It's, it's not a chore. It's just, this is what we, this is how we take care of our space. When we, we spill something, we clean it up. It isn't a, <gasps> you know, we just spilled something stress. It's yeah. like, we just clean it up. 
You know, we, we sweep the floors every weekend and it is, you just don't make a deal out of it. But what happens is there's this, well, I better see if I can get little Susie to help me today with this clean. It's like, but we, we instill that stress and then the children feel that stress and then they think something must be wrong. Therefore I'm going to push back and I don't want to do this. So, you know, being raised by mom from the Philippines, and when I have gone to the Philippines many times, kids there don't give their parents a hard time, at least in the barrio. Now, this when you go to Manila, you can feel the difference. But when you're in the village, no one is not eating the food. You know, no one's wanting a different kind of dinner. You know, it's on the, you eat the rice, you eat the chicken, you eat the vegetables. There's no options. Like that's what you eat. And everyone pitches in. And I just think there is, we've lost some of that in our more Western world. I mean, that's a whole other thing. Yeah. Like growing, growing, growing up for me, like my mom's Lebanese, my mom's Lebanese. Like she was Mm -hmm. chasing after me with a vacuum, with a, with a cloth or with anything to pick up anything at at, at any time, you know? So I get stress responses around cleaning now. (laughs) <laughs> well, see that, but yeah, and then so that's like an interesting reaction. It's like if she was chasing, why was she chasing you? <laughs> you know? like, like, constantly, like, there couldn't be any mess, you know, it had to be straight away. Perfect. The, the, the second right. after it occurred, it was gone. <laughs> yeah. I, I get it. I had a pretty amazing but intense Greek mom, and so she was on it. I mean, she everything had to be on point right. in the house. Perfect. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and I think the important thing is like we can sit and laugh at it, right? And yeah. that means that it probably wasn't abusive. It was just a very specific kind of culture. Yep. And and then and, but then it's like when does culture become kind of you know sociologically just not good? Yeah. <laughs> and that that happens, unfortunately. It, it happens. I think it happens more than we realize in the school system and in a lot of households uh, where um, being perfect and being brave and showing your best self. And it's kind of that very, you know, uh, good grades on this football team looks good, but inside is this little person who just wants to like take crayons and draw something you know but that isn't acceptable in that family and that's that's a serious issue like and I think a lot of folks are struggling when they hear this is why I'm starting to use the word trauma less in my work is a person might be like well I wasn't beaten yeah you know I I, why am I so struggling with this mental illness or ADD or a chronic illness. I'm seeing that this girl Irene is saying that trauma causes these things, but that didn't happen to me. But then you start to ask the traditional things of, were you only given a hug when you got the good grades, right? Like those sorts of things, you start to see that there was a, there were a lot of conditions. That's the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Well, again, I, I get it. People think like when they hear the word trauma, it's like, well, some major single event that was so intense that happened, yeah. but it can be a, a bunch of little things, little tiny things, live over time. Micro, mm-hmm. micro trauma, micro traumas. Yeah, they're micro traumas, and they're also because there are the big abuses, and those are real, and those are really bad. And 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 I've often found with my students, those who have lived through those, they know 
that something was really bad growing up. Yeah. But the micro traumas, people sometimes call them little T. I've actually, I don't like, it's like, no, they're just as significant, but they're almost invisible because mm-hmm. they're socially acceptable. You know, um, I live near a park here by the ocean and man, I could write a book, just the things I see that happened with parents and kids. And one, the other day, there was a little boy that was um, with his dad and dad was on his phone. So he kind of wasn't paying attention. Little boy wanted to like go to the tree and, and like, he wanted to hug it. Like it was very clear because the kid was maybe four. And dad's like, no, 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 no. We have to go over here. We have to go over here. And he pulled him away from the tree. I'm like walking. I'm like, I'm like, okay, 10, nine, eight. Yep. And then the cries just tantrum. And I'm like, why won't you just let him touch that tree? Like, is it because A, you got to get to your call and get to your car? Are you uncomfortable with your kid touching a tree? Is that like a hippie thing? Like, are you, did you, were you not allowed to play and express when you were a kid? It's like, all you had to do is let him touch that tree and say, hey, that looks really cool. You know, maybe I'll touch it too. But what is keeping a dad, a mom from doing that? Of course, we could dissect it, but well, I can I, I, I can speak on that. It actually speaks to yeah. I gave of my mum, you know, because you know nothing could ever be dirty, kind of thing. You couldn't play in mud. You couldn't. It's like that was a big deal if there was mm-hmm. shit, right? So cool. it's it, it, it's 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 a bit of that as well. Yeah, under a hundred percent. It's it's that's dirty. Don't touch it. Yeah. Um. And and sure. Yeah. Like I live somewhere where on the downtown east side, there's hypodermic needles everywhere of course don't touch that but when mm. you're at the park and there's just grass and the most it might be dog poop you know but look out for that stuff um but no like these little things they they add up um and if a little one isn't being allowed that then when are they also not being allowed to express what's happening in the home um and it it really it really forms a person to the point where they're they don't even know who they are because they've been having to manage, micromanage inside. It's like the micro traumas create this micromanagement of who we are. Yeah. And I think that's why so many adults are just struggling to really know their own right from wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Their own it's, truth. It's really like a, it's, it's a it's a diminished experience of, of 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 who you are as well. There's less available to you to, to, to access and feel and so the different nuances of, of life, you know. Um so vital. One thing I want to ask you, um, yeah. does an individual have to relive trauma to heal trauma? No. Not at all. And I think that's one of the reasons why I think a lot of people are afraid to do this work because they know maybe that what happened to them was really bad and why would I want to go back and feel that? So, you know, we really can't go back, at least not yet. The time machine hasn't been figured out that I know of. (laughs) Maybe it is, but like we can't go back to that moment. But what we do need to do is we, it goes back to that capacity building I was talking about. So let's just say, I'll give an example You've got um, someone who knows that they were, uh, you know, molested when they were young. They know it happened. It's kind of like this faint memory. And they just don't want to go there. In that moment, it makes sense. They don't want to go there because their capacity hasn't built up 
to be able to sense all the stuff that they had to push down when it was occurring. And so this is why I'm very much against cathartic practices that try to get it out of you, like exposure therapy kind of stuff. It's like when you do build that capacity that I was talking about, titration, learning how to sense, understanding the education, really understanding how your body works on the inside, reconnecting with the environment, having really good resources, all the things. As you become more apprenticed in your physiology, not in relationship to that incident, but just in the moment over time, you become, your window of tolerance actually grows. You get one and you realize that you can actually feel big stuff. And so one of the things I'll say to my students is like, anytime you have a little minor hurt, whether you stub your toe on the coffee table or you burn your finger on the toaster or whatever, that is your opportunity to build a layer of capacity to feel this intensity or someone wrongs you and you know, you can't say anything, but you feel this is what I would do if I could act out, like it's getting that healthy aggression out. Let's just say over the course of a couple of months, a year, you build that up. You will find that that person will be able to remember and bring up that event, that molestation and see it and feel it in all of its color, but to stay embodied in the now, as opposed to flashback that pulls you and dissociates you out. And by being in the now on this day, feeling it, seeing the event, smelling the gross smells, the taste, the, all the sensations, and of course, um, having learned what to do with those, as opposed to just sit there and feel it, um, you might have to act out some movements, whatever it is, that's where you actually might have the shaking responses come out, the pushing away responses. When that person's capacity is there, it's not that they're reliving it, but they're remembering what their body couldn't do because they were maybe too young to do it. And so that is where massive empowerment and triumph, a word that Peter Levine often uses, you become the triumphant against the bad thing that happened to you. And that's where healthy aggression, um, learning how to work with disgust, which is a very important emotion for dealing with those sorts of things come out. Um, so to, you know, long way of saying, Joel, you do not need to relive it, but you need to be able to remember and process all the survival strategies that didn't get to act out because you were probably unable to, um, and you maybe didn't have the resource, the parent, the support to help you process that afterwards. I mean, the amount of people that I've worked with where often the family members know exactly what occurred and they did nothing is beyond comprehension to me. Yeah. Can you talk about anger? Because I feel like anger is that emotion that is repressed or people have a weird relationship with their anger and yeah. can you talk about how it's a benefit uh, and how it is this vital life force energy. Yeah. And for many people that maybe are stuck in that freeze state, that yeah. that's kind of a thing that if they can tap into that, they can bring some of that life force back. Yeah, I mean, anger is one of the basic six emotions. Um, and we have it in us because we're mammals, you know, we're, we're of animal nature. And 
it is a protective response, but it's also, as you said, a healthy life force energy. And the root of the word um, aggression is uh, agredi, it's Latin, and it means to push forward, like to like to march on forward and do the things you have to do. And anger is, is big and it also provides a release. And so, and there's also a spectrum because there's the rage and the like, I am going to kill this person because they're harming my babies, right? There's that big, but then there's the frustration, like person cuts you, and classic, you know, person cuts you off on the highway, <laughs> hardly happens these days, but let's just say we use that. It's like, there's a, you know, when you, you feel the heat go through you. And of course, we know that can sometimes turn out not good because the person will chase the person, but that is, that is like a healthy um, force of that wasn't right. Stop that. Um, for example. And so the anger thing is tricky because it's not enough to say to someone who comes in to say the office or into my courses, um, you're shut down, let's get some anger out of you. Because for many people, their shutdown is there because they saw violence and they saw anger that was not healthy. It was abusive. And then the flip side is which I find more common is there was no healthy aggression. There wasn't even any sadness or joy. Mm. It was just like, you know, the stiff British upper lip kind of scenario that so many people have been raised with. Um, very opposite to like the Italian energy or the Greek energy, for instance, right? It's like all that, that vibrancy. Um, and so to work with anger, again, it depends on the person and where they're at. And some of the ways of working with it are using sound, um, using certain toning exercises to stimulate the vagus. Um, for some, it might be actually watching some things that have a little more aggression, like animal videos, believe it or not. The other one that can be beautiful to watch is that classic haka ceremony. Um, oh you know, where they're getting the faces and they're like, what about Scarface? Scarface? <laughs> the movie Scarface. Well, I don't know what the, I don't know. Uh, what, about, what, about, what about like Mafia Pacino movies? Movie. <laughs> it's an Al Pacino movie. Okay. okay yeah, Probably yeah. not. <laughs> I mean, and, but then you like, so it's like watching sometimes, but then there's like the opposite where it's just too much like insane violence. Like yeah. now I'm thinking Pacino, you know, heat, not the best example yeah. of how you want to instigate move, you know, aggression in someone. But what's interesting with healthy aggression and anger is that just like everything else, you have to titrate to get there. But what happens is that when you start to teach people that, yeah, anger, it's actually an important thing. And, and, um, this is what shows a child actually their life force. So I'll give you an example. And Julie, how old are your, I, would, I don't have to ask, but. Three and one. Okay. One's good. So there's a point when an infant is on, usually mom, because maybe there's longer hair and maybe they're, they're suckling or, and the, the kid will just start pulling the hair or they'll start scratching or pounding or, and Biting. that is, that is actually their sympathetic nervous system feeling their strength. It's 
the start of healthy aggression. I did a video on this a while ago. Mm-hmm. And again, two scenarios. One scenario, which is sadly more common in our more Western world, is a mother feels that, sees that. And these are Peter Levine's words, not mine, but they're so good. He's like, mama sees that. And she's basically like, you're a little monster. Stop that and puts them down in their crib, walks away. But what that little one is doing is they're just feeling their their life force because all Mm -hmm. of a sudden they have muscles that are a bit stronger and these hands that can like pull things and this feels super good. And so in that moment, again, if the mother, A, doesn't understand or hasn't been educated, she might think little monster, let's put you down. I've also heard from some moms who have been consulted with me because they've gone onto Google and Google's like, just hit them back. If your baby hits you, hit them back, true story, or flick them, pinch them, and that'll make them stop, true story. And I'm like, yeah, don't do that. (laughs) Thank you for consulting me. And so what you do in that moment is you match them. (laughs) I know. If they pull, you might take their hand and go, oh, and then you do a tug of war with their hand, right? Like, because yeah, maybe it's hurting mom and it's, but you say, wow, you're so strong. Look at how strong you are, right? Mm -hmm. And then they feel it and then they engage and their first expression of healthy aggression and power has been met. It's the same with, I'm hungry, please feed me. I'm crying, please soothe me. And so, you know, of course we have no statistic on this, but I'm pretty certain that many babies never get that, 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 uh, attunement with that aggression and then what do you think might happen after that they're just going to stop doing it no one's matching me so i'm just going to put another layer of shutdown into my system unconsciously because it's all somatic and so if we think about that you guys like that is a big again a big piece to work on when an adult has never even considered what's it like to get mad yeah and i might express to someone like a sound and you know where a person is at because they hear it and maybe they're like oh that's cool or they hear it and their eyes are like terrified and they're like uh no and in that moment that's where those cathartic workshops where everyone's just getting the baseball bat it doesn't work because there'll be people doing that who are doing it to stay a part of the tribe but their insides are dying and they don't even know it. Yeah. And a a big part of the problem is that we assume that the moral code of the tribe is correct and all of our natural and natural emotions, you know what I mean? That because they're in 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 an antagonistic relationship to whatever that moral code is, that we're wrong, that there's something wrong about us, you know? And we talk so much about the psychological shadow and and how it's built. But what's what's the body's relation to the to the shadow, you know? Totally. I mean, tribalism is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because a lot of people hear that and they think it's good because then they have these ideas of like community and nomads and happy children, but it actually is quite barbaric in those those situations, right? So, um, you know, the other thing too that I haven't touched on, I don't know, Eurasmus, does that answer your anger question? Yeah, it does. I mean, I just think think it's so important to have a relationship with anger because I think when we are able to tap into those parts of us, 
it really supports us in setting yeah. healthy boundaries too. It's someone who doesn't yeah. connect to anger. It's, it's very difficult. You, again, you can allow yourself to be taken advantage of and be walked all over because the simple act of even pushing out and saying, no, you will not speak to me this way. No, you will not do that to me is so foreign yeah. to an individual in their nervous system. It's so foreign and it's a threat to even say no. And this is where, again, I don't have stats for this, but I know that a big portion of the people that I've worked with or have gone through my work don't follow through because the environment they're in, usually with a partner or a spouse, is such that that spouse is is not able to meet the growing capacity in the person who's doing the healing work. And they'll start to see their, their partner get this energy to them, this life. And if they haven't done their work or if they're not interested, they will find a way to keep that person small. And, and that's where the person doing the work has to make a choice point. They have to decide, am I going to stay in this um, or am I going to leave because my vitality is more important than this relationship? And then you have, if you have attachment trauma onto that, it's fucking hard to pull out of that because that's my safety, even though that safety is not allowing me to be who I am. I mean, we can trace this back to even children who will get sick so that they get attention from their parents. Oh yeah. It's that's huge. a big, that's a big one because that's the only way they were able to get attention was when they were sick too. So I feel like that kind of fuels some of the the victim culture a little bit is yeah. like, oh, wow. And now I can get love or I can get attention because that was the only way I got it when I was younger. Yeah. It's a way of fawning. We talk about fight, oh. flight and freeze and people like, what about fawn? I'm like, well, fawn is a bit more complex. Fawn is, is a bit more of a human complex thing. And I've seen kids. It's sad. You know, I'm, I, I see children who are being kind of puppeted on social media for their parents and it's a way to build a brand and likes and it's like okay and that little one is now knowing that they have to perform in a certain way and not be who that's and you'll see it sometimes in videos that I watch on social media where you see the, the child kind of retract it's kind of like that the little one inside mom that's like retreat and you watch it I, I could spend days I'll get depressed if I do it but mm -hmm. watching these videos of kids online and you turn the volume off it's a great way to study the nervous system and you see these kids glazing over and you even see the contempt in their eyes but they hide it because there they are for mommy being all nice and showing up and it's just it's, that's a bit of big pet peeve of mine is that I don't think many are realizing what that's doing yeah. in the long I don't think we know because we haven't had enough generations you know become adults from that yeah i want to while, while we're on that topic i want to yeah. bridge it slightly obviously we've all had this really strange experience the last two years right. what do you think the long-term i don't know what you're talking about <laughs> <laughs> what what do you think the long-term impact of parents wearing these masks constantly and chill children and babies not really getting the, the full facial expression from the parents um, could have on the nervous system? Well, I mean, I'm not following all the research because there really isn't any yet. It's too soon. 
Yeah. But the little I've seen is that the developmental delays are massive. Yeah. And I mean, I'll just, I'll speak from experience because I've just decided not to try to follow all of it because it's just too, too much. Yeah. But, you know, there's a park that I walk with often with my husband and uh, even a year and a half ago, you could tell um, what was going on in that family system. Because as the people would come towards you, they would either just keep walking like nothing was wrong, which was always so nice. But more often than not, there would be this shift in the way that they were walking mm -hmm. and they would pause. And the worst one that I saw was this little kid. He was probably six turned like and looked away and I can really I can tell when someone's doing something because of my training he he held his breath mm. and this is a big trail you know it's <laughs> but it was like oh no and 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 so you I saw that and then I I see it still walking around the thing that is really interesting um, but this isn't interesting when you know teenagers and kids, as I'll see a lot of kids still wearing masks, but the parents aren't. I yeah, know I, I, I've noticed that as well. You've noticed, yeah. Yep. And I've, I have, so you're in Austra Australia, Cali, that's happening here, that's happening with my friends that see this in North Carolina all around. That is, that is, that's terrifying to me because, um, it's showing that it's become kind of a fad, maybe, but it's also hiding them. I'm not so sure. Maybe it's about health. I don't know. But it's like their insecurities, which kids are already dealing with without all the stuff that just occurred, it's allowing them to be hidden. Yep. Yeah. And how that is going to play out as they age, I think it's anyone's guess. Yeah. I, I really it gives, don't it gives, it gives me goosebumps like honestly yeah. just thinking of the the possibilities of that it's super sad yeah and and back to what you were saying about the developmental delays i've i've had some dialogue with some mm. like speech pathologists and yeah. people who have friends who are speech pathologists and i think i may have mentioned this before on another episode but the 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 delays and these five-year-olds that have been wearing masks you know for yeah. the last two years like they're not pronouncing they're not pronouncing words there's drooling they're not articulating and and even beyond that going even older i have a, a friend whose father was uh, teaches like freshman year in high school sure. and he, he said that everyone it's so obvious how delayed they are in certain ways and maturity levels etc and it's it's noticeable so again like you said we don't know how things are gonna evolve well and to 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 marry that back to what I was talking about with the polyvagal, the one thing I, I didn't mention. Um, so when we're born, our, if we're born full term and we're healthy, our parasympathetic nervous system that is dorsal, that is the rest, digest, and the freeze, it's working. What isn't working is the ventral portion of the vagus. And that's the social engagement yeah, that's why a second ago I made the funny faces and we all had a fun time with that, right? And the thing to understand is not only does that help us see and communicate, but it directly goes to the SA node of our heart, the pacemaker. Mm -hmm. And that's why 
good bedside manner from a nurse or a doctor helps calm us down because they see us, they listen, they might speak more slowly. You know, you're scared. I'm going to call. I'm going to talk to someone. It directly goes to the heart and brings it, it self-regulates it in a, in a fine-tuned myelinated fashion, that ventral vagal portion of the parasympathetic nervous system. And so my sense, if I really sit and kind of ponder, is that what will probably be happening in these kiddos that have been brought up not seeing this. I mean, imagine if I did this interview without using my face, it would be virtually impossible. Um, it's not teaching them that self-regulation capacity by seeing faces. So the question is, what is going to occur to them so that they can find self-regulation because they will seek it? Just like a kid who has a real shitty environment is going to find drugs or something to calm themselves down or to um, mm -hmm. give them energy because they're so shut down, right? And so that's the other portion. People are speech, yes, engagement, but it's also directly connecting with their autonomic physiology. Um, so, you know, I don't yeah. want to be doomsday about it, but I think we're in for some serious troubles with these yeah. kiddos. I, I, I agree. And I just want to speak from personal experience is, and I feel like I'm someone who has a pretty high window of tolerance and I've, I've yep. done years of my own work in different I would areas. Agree. Yeah. But I have, um, I had a lot of health issues when I was a child, ear issues, operations on my ear. So I have about like 60, 70% hearing loss in my right ear. Sure. And so I've realized that I look at people's mouths when they speak, even though I, no one would like think of me as someone with hearing issues, but well, it's would. something that I, <laughs> <laughs> um, it's just something that I do. And I noticed the beginning of all this where, you know, I'd walk into a store and I, I just couldn't see a face. I couldn't see a mouth. And it was really weird. It just felt so unnatural for me, even more so because that's something specific that I rely on to, to get information and to communicate. Were you finding yourself saying, pardon me, a lot? Can you say that again? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Even I, even I, mean, I, I do was. that normally. I do that normally, but <laughs> it was heightened. No, I, I, it, it became very clear to me um, how often I had to ask a person to say something again. And it wasn't because the sound was low. Because, yeah, you don't realize how much you actually read lips. Mm. Um, yeah. You know, so it is an, it's an interesting thing, you know, that the face is essential. Because um, you can't tell someone's affect by just seeing their eyes. Mm -hmm. There's so many muscles around the face. I mean, like so many. I mean, it's just it's it 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 is what makes us human. Yeah. As and also the the hands, right? The dexterity there. So. Well, I I, I trained as an actor years ago in a previous incarnation for years, mm -hmm. and I know there was an acting teacher. I don't know where he was based, but he, he wrote a book, and I'm forgetting the name, but it was all about studying different faces, you mm -hmm. know. And so again, like to be able to see people in a certain state, like like you mentioned before, turning off the volume, like you can get the story by, by just seeing, seeing the gestures that someone is doing. You don't need to hear anything. You can get information. And so we're being, we have been deprived of this information. Mm -hmm. And so for someone who's in those, you know, let's say zero to seven, those developmental yeah. years, um, you know, it definitely gives me goosebumps. It kind of gives me that feeling of just like, oh man, like my, yeah. it breaks my heart. Yeah. 
And I, I don't know what we're, we, we won't know. I mean, yeah. <clears throat> I often use an example when someone asks, Irene, do you think everyone can heal if they have a dysregulated nervous system? And I kind of say, well, if you're here on this Zoom call, for example, and you were able to like type in your name <laughs> and you see me smile and you kind of smile and you kind of go, well, she's kind of crazy. You know, even if it's not a, a positive experience, you'll, you probably can. I can. Then of course, it's your own personal vindiction to do it. But there are stories of, you know, Bruce, have you come across Bruce Perry's work? Mm -mm. Um, he is a, I always, I think he's a psychologist and a psychiatrist, MD. Um, he's the, he's the guy that they brought in like after Waco, you oh, know, okay. right. He's the guy that's brought in when a, a child does something that is heinous and terrible and it doesn't make sense to try to figure out what went wrong in this situation. And so one of his books, Born for Love, is wonderful. And another is, I think it's the boy who was raised by a dog. Ah, uh, okay. I know that book. I haven't read it, but uh, yeah. I think my wife Born, Born for Love is my, is my oh, I'm getting shivers thinking about it. It's, that book is just like, it explains human culture like to the T and all the traumas. But if someone was actually put in a cage, orphans that they studied from Romania back in the day, this, that's kind of like the case study um, where there is no connection, there's no touch, there's no love, um, those people don't have a very good chance of being functional humans in society. How we define that, whatever, but it just, it, that early upbringing is so important with that ventral vagal, that co-regulation. That's my worry with these little ones who haven't seen enough faces is even though they had food and warmth and the parents were there, there is a primary signaling mm -hmm. system that was not sparked up. And the question is, is can that get smart sparked up after that developmental stage? And I don't have enough expertise in that field to say yes or no. I mean, we're just going to have to see, I think. Yeah. One last, I mean, just one last thing I kind of want to talk about and yeah. you kind of touched okay. on it, but again, it's this idea like, and I feel like sometimes in the new age community, you hear like, you can heal from anything. Right. And, and I just don't, it doesn't seem very realistic because there's so many factors that go into it in terms of like when the trauma happened, you know, mm -hmm. what's going on in your life, like where you're at. Like, it's just, I don't think there's, it's a, it's realistic, not saying you can't, but to just be like, anyone can heal from anything, no matter what. <laughs> just yeah. don't, don't tell, don't tell that to someone who has hemophilia, you know, oh, okay. a blood condition, right? Yeah. You know, or if, if I work, I've worked with people that are wheelchair and wheelchairs, wheelchair athletes, their spinal cord isn't coming back. Yeah. You know, so I think contextually it's very important. I think that from what I've seen though, again, if we use that example, your, your faculties are there, you can feed yourself, you have a home, there's, I hate to say it, but money in the bank, like there's that base level thing. I think a lot can be healed sure. in regards to the chronic conditions that we've accepted as just kind of normal. I have some students who have gotten off of thyroid meds after being on them their entire lives when they were told you're never going to get off. I have uh, one student I'm thinking of um, who is a type one diabetic, 
takes insulin, her insulin dosage has dropped significantly from learning how to be with her system and heal the old traumas. Uh, she's writing a memoir actually about it right now because she, again, she was told you're going to be a diabetic. You might lose your feet, like all the things that they say are going to happen, but that's based on the old model of what we knew and what we knew how to treat. Um, so I agree. I don't like the whole, everyone can heal and it's just all love and light. Yeah, it's Great. not very grounded. It's not. And it's very, you know, the whole topic of spiritual bypass is, you know, a thing. And, and I kind of sort of have been calling it somatic by bypass because it's like, we have like, we're bypassing our soma, the spirit. Yeah. That's always going to be there for us when we're ready, but um, it's the bypassing of our body that is getting us into trouble because you can't heal these conditions if you're not connected to your system. You sure you don't want to transcend the body, Arin? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> what would that mean? Someone actually asked me that the other day because I don't believe in what we would call enlightenment. Yeah. But I believe in being intelligent and being really um, bet, like bomber at healing your immune system. Yeah. And we can heal so much. That's the thing, right? I, I think, I don't even think we understand how much potential the human system has. And I don't know the stat, but it's like only so much of our brain, whatever we use. But think about it this way. If it's true that most humans have some form of dysregulation currently on this planet, which is probably true, mm -hmm. um, what would it look like if even 10% got their shit figured out and really got regulated? Yeah. Like that doesn't seem like a lot, but there would be a tipping point because they would then be interacting with people differently. They would be having babies differently. Yeah. Um, and when we get when we get to that point where there's more regulation, I mean, I don't think we even have figured out how far we can actually do with our system. I mean, I fully believe in telepathy and all that stuff. You know, I've, I've, I've experienced it. I've seen it. I've looked at it. It's like, it's there. Um, and it works best when we're regulated. Yeah. That's my thought on that, at least. Yeah. All yeah, right. we haven't even talked about past life trauma. That's another one. <laughs> I feel like I feel like we could talk about so much. <laughs> we could. We'll have to get you back for a part two. Sure, if, definitely. Sure. But for yeah. now, I've got a final question for you. Um, mm -hmm. Okay, so you had all of social media to 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 your disposal. You could send one message, and every single social media user uh -huh. on the planet would read it. Oh God. What would you say? You didn't <laughs> prep me for this one. <laughs> Well, my prep me for it, so it's okay. My cheeky part of me that's a little more like is like take care of your shit, just work on yourself. Yep. Yeah. yeah. You know, like it doesn't have to be my work. Just you know, eat better, be nicer, take care of your body, take care of your house, take care of your shit. It's like take care of your and shit. that's the thing is that I just think there's. It yep. is, it is hard though. I'm going to say that, you know, it's like, oh, well, easy for you to say, Irene, you've got, it's like, yes. And I've seen a lot of people take care of their shit and thrive. Yeah. 
And, and, and so it all comes back to that deserving and that believing of it. And then that can take a lifetime mm-hmm. and that's okay. Yeah, that's right. Take care of your shit. I like it a lot. <laughs> How can people find you? What are you offering? How can they get in touch with you? Yeah. How can they continue with your work? It's just my name, Irene Lyon, L-Y-O-N.com. Website, all my stuff's there. Tons of free stuff, tons of YouTube videos. Apparently they're binge worthy. Um, and then of course I've got uh, courses, programs, um, two main programs. Uh, one is a 21 day nervous system tune up. Um, that's like self-study, but there's still support. And then my big kind of um, really kind of the, the big one is called Smart Body, Smart Mind. And that's a 12 week program. And that is really uh, the one that will work at that stress organ level that I was mentioning a little bit about. And of course, everything else. Um, and we run that. It's been once a year, but we might run it again in the fall because there's been interest. Awesome. Awesome. Yeah. This has been one of my favorite conversations ever. Aww. It's such a pleasure to have you here for real. Yay. And just thank yeah. you so much for everything that you do and offer. Yeah. 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 I agree. I just want to piggyback on that. Like, I really appreciate uh, the work you do. I think you have some of the best content on social media in terms of how you deliver the information. You're really grounded uh, and it's very practical stuff. And so, thanks for taking the time out. And, uh, and, and mm. with us. Well, thank you. And you are so welcome. Thanks everyone for watching and listening. Take care guys. Smoke and mirrors. I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in the time. They think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms. Cause they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward in evolution. To a place where we can share that confusion. Yeah. 450 BC. I'm sharing tea with confusion.